Thank you, team. Didn't they do a great job? And we're not here to clap for our, the people that work with us in Forest, but Friday night was pretty special, wasn't it? It was just a special night. And if you're visiting here because you were here Friday night, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. If you want more information about our church, there's a table out back and a lot of people there can help you. And also after church, we have times of prayer here. We sing a closing song. We're a church that sings at the end. We sing at the beginning. We sing in the middle. So do not leave at the end. After I'm done, we're gonna sing a great song. And then afterwards, if you wanna come down and pray, there'll be men and women here. If you just wanna pray quietly by yourself, you're welcome to do that as well. But please understand, after every service, there are people here that you can come down. And if the crowd's going that way, just wait a moment in your seat and just kinda work your way down. They'll be here for a while afterwards as well. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about um, apologizing. Today we're gonna begin in a few moments the Gospel of Mark. Now if you don't know Mark, his real name is John Mark. John Mark is his name, but he kind of got rid of the word John because one of the most famous people in the Bible is named John and I think he got confused and you know, people got confused thinking he was the John, so he just went with Mark. But think about this. He made a huge mistake. And the number one guy of the New Testament outside of Jesus is Paul, Peter, and John, the three of them. He went against Paul. Now that's like going against Mother Teresa or going against Billy Graham or something. I don't know. He went against them and he's known as the guy who started and split from the key guy. I mean, is that a mistake or what? That was in about 45 AD, and they split. And actually, Barnabas and Mark went this way, and Paul and Silas went this way, and we never heard again much from Mark and Barnabas until about 20 years later. Mark ends up in Rome. Now, John is a Jewish name. Mark is Marcus, is a Roman name. His mother was Jewish, his father was Latin, Roman. So he was half and half. About 65 AD was when Nero burned Rome. And he was a madman, of course. And he had to blame somebody, so he blamed the Christians. And the big persecution of the Christians began. So you have the persecution of the Christians, and it's 65, it's 35 years after the resurrection. So most of the people who were adults and saw the resurrection and talked to Jesus, you know those 500 people afterwards, most of them are dead. Oh, there's one or two alive, but there's nobody left who was there. And so God called upon four people to write the story for those of us who weren't there. And the first guy he chose was John Mark. He wrote the first gospel, first sequentially in the writings, then Matthew and Mark, and then John was later. And you go, of all the people, I wouldn't have picked Mark. Mark's the one that everybody knows, messed up 20 years ago, and really did some bad things. But you know what? God forgives, God moves on. I mean, the key thing about the Gospel of Mark before we ever open it up 
It's a story of redemption of a young man who blew it when he was young, and God said you get a second chance. So do not ever think that the sins of your youth are gonna destroy you when you're older. You've done sins in your youth, apologize, seek forgiveness, call people you need to call, beg God's forgiveness, and you know what you need to do is move on because God's got work for you to do. And that's before we ever open up the book. It's so amazing. Now, one other thing, and then we're gonna open up the book. Um, Over the next few weeks, we have about 65 people joining us from around the world. They're our partners, they're missionaries from around the world. We call it World Lead Summit. It starts in about two weeks. We still need volunteers. We still need help. We're hosting them for anywhere from six to 10 days, depending when they come, when they go. We need drivers, we need uh, hospitality people, all kinds of people. If you'd like to help us, it's an easy help. Just go on the app or go to the back to the table and just sign up and say, I wanna help. We need people to help. And I tell you what, you'll get more out of it than you give because these people are unbelievable. From about 30 countries around the world, they'll be in our services, not this coming week, but the following two weeks after that, we'll get to meet some of them. They'll be in our Bible studies and all the rest, so good. Let's turn to Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter one. And as you're turning there, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's the second book of the New Testament. If you're not sure where it is, just kind of fiddle around, you'll find it. It's the smallest of the four gospels. It's the first written of the four gospels. Now, before we start, I wanna just share something. Last week, I shared a story about art. And those of you who know me know I love art. I'm in art museums, I love art. I just, art to me is like very important. It expresses something. I love words, I'm a person of words. I love action, I'm a person of action, but I love creativity as well, and art is a great way of creativity. Both the statues, um, physical, and then paintings and drawings and all the rest. So if you were to come to my house, our house, Elizabeth and mine, we have a lot of art in our house. Most of it is reproductive art. It's not real. In my office, I have a great painting, an abstract painting of the Sea of Galilee by a Russian Jewish man. It's fabulous. Uh, we have art all over our house. But our, we have a couple of very valuable pieces. And we keep them in one section of the house. So if you came, you could see all the art. And then you go to this one section, and you'll see all our expenses, you know, our valuable art. And we keep it. And I've brought two of them today because I want you to see them. And you know where it is where the most valuable art in our house is? The refrigerator. (laughs) The refrigerator. Oh, you're kidding. No, I'm serious. So this is from the great artist, Gracie. She's 10 years old. I have several, we have several original pieces that are hundreds of years old. This is more valuable to me. And then, The great artist Josh, four years old, did this. And these are on, I had to pull them off. They're so valuable, we don't even put frames around them. So Josh, he gave me this this week. He said, Papa, it's not finished. You need to finish it. And I thought, is that not biblical? 
See, these two children are four of our grandchildren, two of the four of our grandchildren. They're our children. They're my children. They're Elizabeth's children, our grandchildren. You see, we have flesh and blood, and they came out of us. And the beautiful thing is that they're not finished, that there's more work to be done. When you come to Christ, you give your life to Christ. You go, I give my life to Christ. But here's the thing, you're not finished. It's kind of it's like you've given a half-painted piece and said, here I am, whatever it is, and what you need to do is say, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, you finish it. You finish it. So I have a little work to do on this painting, and I'm going to do that work, but I didn't want to do it until after I showed it to you. And then I'll do a little work on it. It's going back on the fridge later today in our valuable section. Every one of you is valuable. Oh, this doesn't doesn't have coinage to it. Others do. Every single one of you is valuable to God. And he is not finished with you until you breathe your last breath. He is not finished with you. And that's the story that Mark begins to tell us because he messed up and God said, I'm not finished with you. And because of Mark, he tells this incredible story that gets people that knew about Jesus, kind of loved Jesus, but all the first people are all gone. Now the persecution is literally coming across the Roman Empire and Mark's the one who says, it's all true. It's all true. Can we look at it? Let's begin. We're going to start in Mark 1, obviously, very beginning. First verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That would be the subtitle. If you were to say, what's the title? Well, the title's Mark. But the real title of this book is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the opening line of the book, and it's important. There's three things to understand here. First is the word gospel. It's the beginning of the gospel. Now, gospel has two meanings. We need to understand this. There is a type of writing or genre of writing called the gospels. So it's the story of Christ. So there's the gospel. It's the story of redemption. And then there is the gospel which is the subset of Jesus's death, his burial, and his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. So when we say we share the gospel, you, are we sharing the whole story, or are we sharing the story of salvation, the story of redemption? You see that? It's both. And so I like to, I usually, whenever I say gospel up here, except now, it's usually the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That is the crux of the larger Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of John. Do you see that? It's the Gospel. Then what is it the Gospel of? It's the Gospel of Christ. So it's the story of redemption, but it's also the story, the book of Mark, is the story of the Redeemer. Mark doesn't do a lot of the details of 
um, the birth, we get that out of Luke and Matthew, or the beginning of the world, we get that out of the Gospel of John, which we talked about at Christmas time. He just goes right into the story because he's got to get these people that are being chased to be burned at the stake and let them know that what they believe is true. So he's not going to start talking about babies and mangers and things like that. That's all very important, especially to us theologically. But he's got to tell the people that are being chased, literally, for their faith that what they believe is true. It's short. It's a treatise. It's simple. But we're going to look at it between now and a little after Easter over the next three months. Then the third part of this introduction is the Son of God. He gets right to it. This is the story, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. People always go, oh, Jesus never said he was God, the Son of God. Jesus just lived a great life. No, right at the beginning of this, he wants everybody to know that Jesus is the Son of God. Later on in chapter 14, we'll get to it two months from now, one of the, um, uh, when he was in his trial, one of the high priests said, are you the Christ? the son of the blessed one. The high priest couldn't say the word God, so he called God the blessed one. So he even asked Jesus, and what does Jesus say? I am. It's one of those I am passages. I am, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living water, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life, but I am the son of God. Isn't that amazing? What we believe about Jesus is the gospel truth. It's Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. And then he goes on, and he talks three people. There's three people at the beginning of this before we get to Jesus. There's Mark himself who makes this declarative statement, first of all. And then he goes on, which I just read. But in verse 2, he brings Isaiah from the Old Testament into it. Isaiah is a key prophet of the Old Testament. We don't talk a lot about Isaiah nowadays. We quote a few verses. Friday night, they sang a verse about Isaiah or from Isaiah, but we don't talk a lot about Isaiah. Nowadays, we talk David, we talk Moses, we talk Joseph, we talk Nehemiah. But Isaiah said, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Isaiah transitions what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Isaiah was written somewhere, um, what, 800 years before Christ. So this is not something that was written just days before. This was 800 years plus the 65 years after Christ's birth. So it's a long time, almost nine centuries ago. And so he announces it, and what he is announcing is that someone's going to come and proclaim that Jesus is here. So he lets us know that there's going to be almost like a trumpet, almost like a, a statement like they used to do in years ago when armies would come in or a, a royal person would come in, they would announce them with the trumpet sound. And who is that? And it says in verse four, it tells us who it is. It's John. Now, not to confuse us all, there's John Mark. Who's Mark? There's John, the apostle who wrote the book of John, the book of Revelation, first, second, third John. And then there's John the Baptist. 
Now, he's not called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer in the Bible, but he does it, and so we kind of identify that. Please know that that has nothing to do with the denomination that maybe some of you grew up in. Okay, nothing wrong with being a Baptist, but please understand that John the Baptist and being a Baptist are just two different things. John the ba- I mean, it's about baptism, but two different things. What does it say about him? John appeared. Now, they happen to be cousins, Jesus and John the Baptist, but that's for another day. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John comes, goes out into the wilderness. The Jordan River is where they were, part of the Jordan River. It's pretty much desert. You're coming out of Jerusalem. You're going 15 miles down to Jericho. You're going another three quarters of a mile across desert to get to the Jordan River. He is out in the middle of nowhere. We do it in air-conditioned cars and buses. They walked it in the heat. And what was he doing? He was baptizing. Can I just tell you, Jews did not need to be baptized. Jews didn't get baptized. Jews got circumcised, the men. You didn't have to be baptized unless you were converting or proselytizing, coming from another faith into believing in Jehovah over the years. Then you got baptized. So very few people got baptized. Now John's coming and say, all of you get baptized. It's a whole new thing. This concept of baptism, what he was doing in the Jordan River. And all the country of Judea, Judea is 15 miles up the hill, across the desert, by him, were baptizing by him, I'm sorry, I left out a line, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him, down to the Jordan River, and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. There was a revival coming before Jesus came. And John the Baptist was leading this incredible revival. They say there were thousands, there could have been tens of thousands of people a part of this. It's huge. Judea, Jerusalem, that's the urban part of this area. Galilee's kind of the rural part. Judea and Jerusalem's the, the urban part. And they're coming down and going out and getting baptized and coming back to the Lord. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He did not look like a groomed high priest. The high priest, you know, if you read the Old Testament, they wore some pretty cool clothes. I mean, they had some great stuff. It was pretty amazing, their hats, their ephod, all the belts and everything. And what does he come? Because he is not interested in any of that. He comes in camel's hair and all this stuff and a belt, and he's eating locusts. Who knows what that tastes like? And wild honey, I do know what that tastes like. I love wild honey, so I get relate a little bit to him. And he preached, saying, after me, he who is mightier than I, this is interesting, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, is that backward? If I had tens of thousands of people coming to me, and in a moment of time, my job would be do this. It's him. It's him. 
it's not me. And in a moment of time, he stopped being the number one prophet of the country. And on one day, he goes, it's Jesus. And he turns and he leaves. Is that humility or what? I mean, that is amazing. I don't know one person who has 10,000s of followers, whether it's on Facebook or in real life, who would say, I'm giving it all to him. And his whole purpose was to get people aligned, get people thinking, get people spiritually awake. There had been a kind of a slumber for 400 years in Israel, not the total time, there was up and down, up and down, but he was waking them up for a revival. And the revival was not John, the revival was him. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amazing stuff. Now there's a couple things that happen here. Three things I wanna mention today about Jesus in this opening. The first is the actual baptism. So Jesus goes down and allows himself to be baptized by John. In those days, verse nine, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now that's the rural area to the north. Beautiful, that's the uh, breadbasket of Israel. That's where the grains are, and that's where the fruits, and that's all, it's gorgeous up there. Comes down to the city, and then goes out to the desert, to the Jordan River. Little river coming through the desert. And when he came up, I'm sorry, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's where we get John the Baptist. He's the baptizer. Now listen to this, this is key. And if you underline your, your Bible or your iPhone, you can highlight it. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now this is the picture. The picture is heaven was ripped open. We usually think of the clouds parted like the opening of a curtain at the beginning of a show, and out comes the dove, and he goes down to Jesus, perches himself somewhere, kisses him, blesses him, and then goes back up through the curtain, and the curtain closes, and we start a new chapter of Jesus' life. This is not what happened. The heavens are torn open. Can I tell you, when you tear something, you can't untear it? You know, when you tear something, it's ripped. It's actually ripped open. It's like when the veil, whole nother story, and I won't get into it, when the veil was ripped in the Holy of Holies, it was ripped so that it would never be sewn back together again. God was entering into the world of humanity in a new and big way, and he ripped it open. And the spirit descended, not a dove, like a dove. It's not a dove. We always think the spirit is a dove. The spirit is not a dove. It's like a dove. It's a picture. So it's like coming down to him. It's an amazing thing. And then a voice came from heaven 
saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. John's backing up like this, and except for something we're gonna talk about later in the book, John's kind of out of the picture now. One day, Jesus comes, even in another, in the book of John, John the disciple wrote, some of the disciples of John the Baptist, John saying, go to him. Go to him, don't stay with me. Staying with me is not the right thing because I was just here to proclaim him to come. Now this is interesting. So, so the first scene of Jesus is his baptism. It's all torn apart. What that means is heaven came to earth. We're gonna talk about that in just a minute. Heaven came to earth. Now the second thing that happened which is very surprising, is that Jesus went out into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days. Now, here's the thing. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you think, all right, this is good. This is good. But what happens many times is it gets bad because Satan wants to become a part of this thing now. Doesn't say Satan was a part of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was doing all these good things, but Satan was probably there, but not doing much. There's not really a lot said. But once heaven tore open and the Spirit of God came to earth, Satan was revitalized and said, I've got to do something here. So Jesus goes out to the wilderness. He and Satan duke it out. Other of the Gospels give us more detail on that. I'm not gonna share the detail, but you can imagine 40 days. This is important. When Jesus says, and when the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says it and later in some of the epistles, that Jesus experienced everything we experienced, can I just say he experienced more? We go, you know, I've experienced some bad things, but Jesus experienced some really bad things. He is duking it out with Satan himself, the most powerful created being. This is real stuff. You might have a wayward child and you have problems. Okay. You might have a business partner and you have problems. He's duking it out with the most powerful created person in the world. And he came back ready to share the gospel with the people. There are times when you will be doing great and you'll be worshiping the Lord with your hands held high and there will be times when your head's gonna be bowed down. We're not really sure when that happens. Sometimes you're not given the heads up on it, if I could use that word. It just happens, doesn't it? And when it happens, you gotta be ready, but know this, that Jesus has experienced what you have. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days. And what's interesting, the the Gospel of Matthew tells us some of the temptations that Jesus was given. The temptation to pride, the temptation of knowledge, the temptation of your own wisdom, the temptation of all these things, of even creativity. He was tempted where he was good at. Satan tempted him in his strengths. Well, Jesus had all strengths. Sometimes you get tempted in your strengths, not just your weaknesses. We go, oh, I gotta take care of my weaknesses. Sometimes the strengths are your problem too. 
And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. That's the second vignette. So we have the baptism vignette, we have the temptation vignette, and then the third one is this, he calls his disciples. And Mark doesn't go into the detail that the other ones, oh, he called him and called him and all these details at the very beginning. He goes, now after John was arrested, and again, we'll talk about, that's John the Baptist. We'll talk about that later when we get to more information on that. Jesus came into Galilee. He went back to the rural areas. You would think he would have gone to Jerusalem where all the people were. No, he went back to Galilee where he was from. That's where Nazareth is. And we'll learn some of the other cities up there. Proclaiming the gospel of God. Isn't that beautiful? We're told to share the gospel. Jesus shared the gospel. He shared about himself, we share about him. Saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now that's not the gospel of Mark, that's the gospel of the death, the burial, the resurrection. He was sharing in the future tense what was going to happen. Not everybody understood until it actually happened. Now here, what was he sharing? He was saying the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, I believe when the heavens were ripped open and the spirit came down, God was saying, I'm bringing my kingdom here. What does that mean? Our former pastor had a great word. He always said, the kingdom is where the king is. The kingdom is where the king, he would always say that. Where's the kingdom of God? It's where the king is. And where's the king? Where's Jesus Christ? He's here. So the kingdom of God is here. People go, oh, the kingdom of God is way over there. No, the God is here. The kingdom of God is here because God is here. His kingdom is here. He never left it. Yeah, the kingdom is in heaven. The kingdom is out on Mars, whatever else. But the kingdom is here on earth. It doesn't mean that we are all just physical but the Spirit of God is working here. We have both the kingdom of God here, or heaven, and the kingdom of earth. And I've talked a lot about that, and I won't go into that detail. But then he goes on, and he says, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, when we think of fishing in the Florida context, the fishing in Florida context is a pole, a reel, a throw it out, there's a hook on it, there's something on it, either um, metal or rubber as in a lure, or it actually could be shrimp or a little piece of fish. You throw it into the water, they catch it, you bring in the fish. That's how we do it in Florida. Both fresh water, you do it, and you might have a fly on it or something else, but you're casting something out and you're reeling it in. They use nets, no hooks. There was no hooks in this fishing. It was all nets, and they call it a dragnet. So a dragnet was, this is why they had helpers later on to find out they had a bunch of hired hands. They would go into the water about this high, and because there were like shelves of water, sandbars of water, fish would come up to feed on the grasses, and one guy would walk to here and pull, and the net would go from the ground, which might be five feet deep, up to the surface, might be a, a cork or something, whatever they used back then. And then another guy would keep going with the net and go over here. And then the net was longer, another guy would go and go over here. 
And slowly the fish are getting, and then the other guy would go here, and then another guy here, and they've got the fish. And then they bring the net in. That's how they fished back then. None of this casting out and it's reeling in. So that's what they were doing. So there was Simon and there was Andrew. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, we've heard that, right? You know, I will make you fishers of men. Remember that song? Or am I the only guy left in the world that ever sang that when I was this tall? Okay. So he didn't say, I will make you shepherds. At the end of the gospel, he asked them to be shepherds. At the beginning of the gospel, he says, you're fishermen and women. In other words, our job is to bring people into the net, into the gospel, into understanding who Jesus is, the faith, bringing them in. And then once they're in, you got to shepherd them. So the metaphor changes from fish to sheep. But you got to bring them in. And so many times we think of ourselves only as shepherds, which is taking care of the flock, and we should. That's what we do here at church, that's what community is. But first of all, you gotta bring people in. That's called fishing. You fish them in, and then the metaphor switches to a sheep, and then we take care of the sheep. But so many times we just go, oh, we just take care of the sheep. Well, you gotta get them in first before they become sheep. And we forget that part. And we think, oh yeah, all we're here is to help people and help our brother and help our sister and this and that. But I tell you what, there's a whole group of people out there that are lost fish, that God is calling us to cast our net. And the beautiful thing about this is, a lot of people are lone rangers in their fishing because their metaphor is a pole, a hook, I'm by myself, I'm going out, I'm roiling it in. But the metaphor here is a group of people Kind of interesting, it's a group of people. It took five, six, seven, eight people to bring, to cast out the net and then to bring the net in because then it had hundreds of fish in it. Let me tell you, if you're a lone ranger, that's good, but realize that God has called us to do this thing called sharing the gospel, giving it in group, in church. I mean, with church people out there. Don't be a lone ranger. Do things. That's why we do have all these groups. That's why we have all these outreaches because we want to do it and have each of us helping one another. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. That's a beautiful picture. And that's Simon. Simon is Peter. He became known as Peter the Rock. Simon and Andrew. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, down the Sea of Galilee, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, that's the writer of the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation, the third John of today, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. So they had already worked the morning, and now they're mending the nets. And immediately, excuse me, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and followed Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Peter and Andrew, James and John. They were fishers of fish, and God called them to be fishers of people. 
I didn't know what you're fishers of. I was fishers of real estate. You might be a fisher of education. You might be a fisher of medicine. You might be a fisher of, of uh, mechanic. You might be a fisher of houses. You might be a fisher of whatever, engineering, whatever it may be. God's calling you also to be a fisher of people. And he wants us to do that. We're gonna stop the study right here and continue it. So read the rest of chapter one and into chapter two. I wanna share some things, because today's an important day in, the, in our calendar. And this whole week, this, I gotta tell you, this week, from Monday to Sunday, last Monday to today, every year I kinda get, um, I don't know what the word is, um, angst or just kind of a little, a, a little unsettled. Can I tell you why? Last Monday was Martin Luther King Day. And today is Sanctity of Life Day. Okay, so Martin Luther King Jr. and the representation of that holiday is about social justice and all the things around it. And people celebrate it and people don't celebrate it. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's Choose Life. It's life over abortion. It's life over euthanasia. It's life over all these other things infanticide and other things and all these things. And so you have this things. Some of us celebrate it and some don't. And what has happened in our country is this: these two days have been politicized. And I need to tell you, it's nothing to do with politics. Those who are center and center left say social justice is most important. Those who are center right and right say sanctity of life is the most important. But the interesting thing is the Bible says both is important. Justice, I mean, you go back to Isaiah, go to Amos, let justice roll down like rivers of water. My life verse, which is written on my ring, we are to do justice. But yet we go, justice isn't important. Choosing life is important. So we choose life, and it is important. And you gotta know, I am ardently pro-life. Back, it's 50 years ago today, or this week, the whole thing of Roe v. Wade. And so, what do you do with this? Can I tell you, Jesus was for justice in the injustice of the world, and Jesus was for life and in the insanity of things that were going on back then. We think abortion just started in 1973. My friends, it was around the times of Jesus. They did it in different ways. They did it in just more heinous ways. Bad things occur. So how does this work? How can we be both? And two things come to mind that, that give me hope, if I can say this. One is... Um, in our country, and one is a personal thing. I wanna share that. So there was a lady who lived in the late 1800s, way before the current issue of these two things, but the issues were still there. Her name was Mary, Mary McLeod. There's her picture, born in 1875, a daughter 
Her mother and father were both former slaves. She was born in South Carolina, one of 15 children, and she became a believer in Jesus Christ. And she wanted to become a missionary to Africa. So she went to school, and there were no schools in South Carolina with letter, whatever, the whole thing. So she went to Chicago to Moody Bible Institute, my alma mater. And she learned and she studied and they taught her how to teach Sunday school and how to teach girls and boys and all this stuff. And they went everywhere, it's a great story. So she left the school after she was done and came back to the South, to Georgia. And there in Georgia, she heard the need in Florida. It's the turn of the century now, 1900s, early 1900s. And she became a missionary to Florida. She wanted to start a girl's home. So she started a girl's home and a girl's school. It was called, um, uh, she got married about that time, so it was called Mary McLeod Bethune. And she started this school. She was a Christian. She started a school because these girls had injustices done to them and had issues of life and death done to them. She was, before you said the word social justice was even in our vocabulary, and before pro-life was in our vocabulary, she was both. Mary Bethune, Mary McLeod Bethune, was, has been said, she died in 1955, that she was the second most influential woman in America behind Eleanor Roosevelt. So, I wanna show the next picture. Go to the next one. That picture, that's a statue of her. She is now in Statuary Hall as of a couple of months ago, representing the state of Florida with two statues. We have a statue of the guy who invented air conditioning, which is like, <laughs> makes the most sense. And we have a statue of the only African-American lady in Statuary Hall Every state gets two statues, so there's 100 statues there. Only one African-American lady who was a missionary to the state of Florida. There she is. Because she believed in justice and she believed in life. My friends, we cannot separate these two. We cannot say, I'm center right, so I can't do what they do. And if you're a little center left, you can't go, well, that's what they do. And I remember a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, I was talking only about Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I was talking about pro-life, and I'm ardently pro-life. And a visitor came to me afterwards, first time she was here, and she was mad as a hornet. I mean, finger in my face, so much so that the guards came and stood around me. I'm thinking, it's okay, it's, she's just got her finger on me. And pointing in, I mean, right in my face. She got right up there. And she told me all the things I was. I said, did I say any of that? You're this, you're that, you're this. I said, I said I'm pro-life. She said, well, every pro-lifer is this and that. And you don't care about justice. I go, ma'am, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. So let me tell you part two of this. When I came pastor here, We've done three things here kind of on our property outside of ourselves. Number one, we 
helped have First Care here. First Care, if you're not familiar with, is one of the largest pro-life crisis pregnancy centers in America. It's in Palm Beach County, and we had them here on our campus for years. They outgrew our campus. We had a building for them. They outgrew it, so they moved. And they have several things, so they moved. They had to move. And so we said, let's do something else that's pro-life there. And we put four kids foster system there. And they've been there for 12 years. 12 years on our property running the foster system of Palm Beach County from our property because we are pro-life and we are pro-kids and we're pro-fostering and pro-adoption and all these things, anti-abortion, whatever you wanna say. But they outgrew it and they had to move. They moved to Delray, the bigger space, we didn't have more. And so you know what we did? We said, there are a lot of families that have no homes. And we renovated the building, which you helped do with your finances over the last 18 months. And there are nine family, nine, nine families living on our property today that were formerly homeless, homeless. Now that's justice. That is justice, we call it city house. And we're about to start, we have one other little building back there that has been used for storage. God willing, this year and some money comes in and we'll talk about that in a month or two, we'd like to get three more units out there so that we might have 11, 12, or 13 depending on the size of the units. That means all those kids, those kids come to our school, those women come to our Bible studies. They have a, a house, they have a bed, they have warmth when you need to be warm. They have cool when you need to be cool. They have a refrigerator so that they can put their valuable pictures on the refrigerator. You see that? That's justice. And that's life. And we believe in both. So last, personal of this. The other reason this week always means a lot to Elizabeth and me because 25 years ago, there was a girl who was shot in the head, a young girl, nine years old. She was, that's injustice. She was shot in the head by her 12-year-old sister, accidentally. It was Martin Luther King Day, parents are at work, kids are home, found the shoe box with the gun, opened it up. There was one left in the clip, one bullet. The little 12-year-old didn't know it, and she pulled the trigger, the recoil of the gun pulled up and hit the girl squarely in the head. I say those details because it made the news. I mean, all of us were just aghast at it. It was down in Broward, just a few miles south of here. The mother, seeing the injustice that occurred, the evil that occurred, not so much that her daughter did it purposely, but it's still evil. Death is evil, right? It wasn't sinful, but evil. She chose life, and she allowed her daughter, nine years old, who was on life support, but dead, to have all her organs donated. So there was a boy in Gainesville, up at University of Florida, five years old, who got the heart, who got the heart. That was our son who got the heart. It was amazing. So, you're never supposed to know who your donor is. 
They always keep that private. But when it's in the news about this girl and it's in the news about this boy, we all knew. So our sister-in-law, Elizabeth's sisters, my sister-in-laws, made the contact and contacted the mother. And then finally, Elizabeth, a few months later, called the mother to thank her and said, would you like to come and visit us? And she said, yes, and we set out a date. We, this was after recovery and all, so it was in the spring, weeks later. And so the lady comes with a 12-year-old daughter to our house. What we didn't remember was it was Mother's Day in May. We, never th- we weren't thinking of dates or anything. We were just kind of living day by day. She wasn't, and we get there, and it's Mother's Day. And so we have this kind of talk, and it was nice, but sterile. And then Elizabeth says, do you want to listen to the heart? So I pulled up my son onto the kitchen counter, and this lady put her ear to our son's chest and listened to his heart. I don't know if she did it for a minute or five minutes. Time stopped. It was a surreal moment I'll never forget. All our kids are around. Here's the thing. That heart in our son had been the heart in her body at one time. But it went through another body to get to our son's body. And I stood there and realized this is the story of Jesus. We have the heart of God because of the heart of Jesus who died for us and gave his life for us. And my son, our son, was given new life out of injustice. Jesus died in injustice but gave us life. You see, it comes together. You cannot segregate these two things. And my friends, God has called us to life. And it says, to have it to the full. He wants us to have a healthy spiritual life. Let's close in prayer.